Hustle Podcast You. I'm your host, Hannah. Uh, I'm your other host, David, and we have a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Sarah. I watch a lot of anime. That's why I'm here. <laughs> we all uh, watch a lot of anime. Uh, so or at least much. We, we did. Uh, Hannah was uh, the first to, to really get me into the, the wide world of, of anime. I corrupted um, you. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the shows that we, we watched together concurrently was um, Puella Magi Madoka Magica um, back in 10 years ago now. Uh, we're, we're, we're hitting the, the 10-year anniversary of the show. Messed and, up, man. Uh, and in celebration, we thought we would take a look back at uh, magical girl anime. Uh, Maho Shoujo, or um, uh, Majoka uh, anime, which features girls doing magic things. Uh, girls doing magic stuff, kicking butt and being great. <laughs> in, the broadest, in the broadest possible definition of, of the genre. Um so uh, I thought maybe to start we could talk about our introductions to the genre, our experience with uh, with magical girl anime, and uh, and what it means yeah. to us. Uh, Sarah, would you like to start? Sure. My introduction with magical girl it's not necessarily as different because I knew Sailor Moon existed, but my initial experience was just my friend telling me all about it. So I just knew about all the characters <laughs> because she wouldn't show shut up and had a <laughs> Sailor Moon themed room with Sailor Moon covers. Incredible. So, so I uh, watched like maybe an episode or two with her and I was like, oh, this is nice. I'm going to go watch Dragon Ball Z now. <laughs> but how, how old were you when Oh, this was like introduced? elementary school. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah this yeah. was elementary school. But then it was later in like, like when I was starting high school, I actually was like, "Ooh, I heard, I remember hearing about card captors. I'm gonna watch the the card captor Sakura in Japanese because I want to be cool now." Because I was just getting into like watching anime on my own online, and then what from was there, your, what was your source? Where did you? Uh... Oh, YouTube. It was the YouTube three parts. <laughs> like, it was the YouTube all, era all of, of anime consumption back before all of these algorithms could detect you know, a half a second of copyrighted material uh, <laughs> from 500 yards, anyway. And then from there, I just was watching a lot of anime, and then I initially was like, wait, I should actually watch Sailor Moon. And then I will admit, I did not actually finish Sailor Moon, but I would, I'm a bad Magical Girl fan, but I did, no. like, watch, I watched, like, <laughs> at least like a hundred episodes which is it's sad it's like the oh i didn't finish i only saw a hundred episodes <laughs> <laughs> and uh and do you have a favorite uh oh, maho shoujo uh, tutu princess tutu by far oh uh, yeah so yeah. it's it's that's a uh, an anime from i don't know the early 2000s with like yeah. a, a ballet aesthetic uh to the magical girlness, and also a storybook aesthetic um, yeah it's yeah. very meta <laughs> <laughs> Very meta. Uh, how about you, Hannah? What is your experience with magical girls? Yeah, so it was actually, um, you know, when when we were first kids and these things were airing on, you know, Fox or wherever, yeah. we didn't know they were this thing called anime. We just knew that they were cartoons. cartoons. And yeah. some of them shared certain, uh, like visual elements that were very similar. Right. Um, and so, you know, my sister was actually the one who really got into Sailor Moon. She dressed up as Sailor Moon for Halloween one year, you know, and I would watch along and it was fine. Um, 
And, you know, of course, middle school, when when these things came back around and I dove deep into my, uh, my, my anime phase for real, like, I think similarly to Sarah, you know, you go back and you revisit these things from your childhood with a new appreciation um, and with a new interest and sort of being able to uh, enjoy... Uh, the maturity of the storylines in a certain way that because that because I think that was always the appeal for me in general of anime was that mm-hmm. yes it's cartoons and they do silly funny things but that there is a at least at the time there was a level of maturity that wasn't as often found in western cartoons you know they dealt right. with like more serious topics and characters like disappearing and having real consequences and like you know I think kids are drawn to that because like they they understand the basics of storytelling you know like they're gonna be drawn to the same things that draw in adults in in similar ways um so yeah and then for me for a favorite you know I've gone on to watch a lot and I think I think it's very similar to my other tastes in anime that I tend to prefer the genre subversions uh, to the, like, genre trope mainstays themselves. You know, I like uh, Madoka, I like Kill a Kill, I like, um, you know, just all the... Tutu, even, I would say, is is a little bit of a subversion to the traditional... um, magical girl anime like there's there's always got to be like something extra a little twist you know yeah uh for for me personally you said uh you know children understand the basics of storytelling but i i seem to recall being a little confused uh on on weekday you know weekday afternoons after school like why pokemon this week was so weird and like ash wasn't in it because it was card captors instead of <laughs> Pokemon. <laughs> like, just sort of not really understanding that like two shows can have similar animation styles and not be the same show. That's um, so funny. I, I mean, I think that's a different uh, <laughs> issue you're having. That's just called face blindness, David. <laughs> no, no. I knew the you. characters were different, but I just was like, I don't, Pokemon is weird this week. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I thought Card Captors was was neat, but I didn't really uh, seek out other similar kinds of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess you know, there's just a cultural osmosis thing with Sailor Moon because it infects every American cartoon for the next twenty years. Yeah, um, and still and then, does to this very day. Right, like the movie then, just came uh, out on Netflix. One of the movies. For Sailor Moon, <laughs> right. one of the new ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but of course, you know, for me, uh, you exposing me to Madoka Magica was like a big exciting moment because it was uh, intentionally trying to take these shows that, that as a kid, you just sort of take for granted as like girly. And, and I think because, you know, of the way that I was brought up, you see them as kind of frivolous Mm -hmm. and then this show is turning them on their head and making them seem dark and serious and when you're a teenager that's very important that things be edgy uh (laughs) uh but just recently i watched uh utana revolutionary girl utana and and that that is my new favorite magical girl anime i think it's really fantastic and 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 worthy of all of the many video essays that exist on it on youtube uh just thousands of hours of people just being like and the symbolism (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's symbolic 
Why um, does Utena turn into a car in the movie? <laughs> it's symbolism. He, he answered that. He said, I wanted yeah. a cute, the director said, I wanted the cute girl to turn into a car. Yeah. <laughs> in an interview. It's like Transformers. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, you gotta have a car. And I think, you know, like Transformers, I think transformation is the selling point here. And for kids, I think the idea of turning from your ordinary self into a magical special self that is yeah pretty and cute and powerful is a is a somewhat exciting and empowering uh oh yeah thing to want to buy and purchase and consume <laughs> um well and i mean i think you know it's a similar thing to to superhero fantasies in general like power fantasies like you know that you become this powerful person you know like you're peter parker by day but you're spider-man by night um, you know, and it of course comes with a costume change because you got to look cool. Right. But I think m- more than a costume change, it's supposed to be like a, a magical transformation, a sort of leaving of, of the body, like mm-hmm. an escape from the self kind of thing. And that's the escapism of, of magical girls. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, when you have, yeah, the clothes are changing, but it's, like, automatic. It's not just, like, take, you know, ripping off your Superman suit and then becoming a spandex-wearing crime fighter. It's, like, magically applied clothing. Although, I, think that I will say... that becomes the symbol of Magical Girls from Sailor Moon on, basically. There is one show where it literally is a costume change. And that's Carcaptor Sakura. That's right. All yeah. of her that's outfits true. are just made by, by Tomoyo because she's just like, ba- Tomoyo just goes, well, you can't fight crime if you ain't cute. Here, I'm going to make you cute clothes. <laughs> right. But um, it's still it's still clothes that are sort of foisted upon the character, I guess, rather yeah. than like oh, yeah. a, an active um, decision by them. I, I think, is that what you're saying, David? Well, I, I mean, in that case, it's a subversion because it's it's you know, relying on your knowledge of the history of these magical girl shows where they do transform in, mm-hmm. uh, in most of them. Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you guys want to go through like a history of, uh, <laughs> of, of shoujo anime in general and sure. shoujo in specific? Take, take us down the path, professor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I think, you know, like all anime, you can kind of trace it back to, you know, early, uh, early Japanese comic books, manga, which were typically divided because they're for kids into, you know, boys comics and girls comics. Uh, and then it doesn't become manga as we know it today until uh, Osamu Tezuka, the creator of uh, Tetsuwan Atomu or Astro Boy for those of you who only know the American versions. Um so he sort of revolutionizes the style of manga. He brings over, you know, the sort of Disney aesthetic into these comics. And, you know, as soon as he's making comics for boys, he's also making comics for girls. And one of the first ones is uh, Princess Knight, which is uh, written in 1953. And it's the story. It's a fairy tale kind of story because, we're, again, we're, we're drawing from Disney here. Um, where the main character is a princess who, for magical reasons, also has a has a, a female heart and a male heart, a boy's heart and a girl's heart inside of her from heaven. And fucking trans rights, am I right? 
Well, kind of, uh, but she, because of the, the rules of the kingdom that only a man can in, uh, inherit the throne, she pretends mm. to be a prince for the first, you know, 12 years of her life. Um, yes. And we're following the story of her as this princess knight uh, trying to, you know, hide the fact that she is a girl. And it was sort of based on this, um, this theater tradition in Japan called the Takarazuka Review, which is girls playing both male and female roles and enacting sort of fairy tale like mm. stories, and that was something that uh, Tezuka wanted to adapt. So, from the beginning, we have this this transformation between male and female, like feminine ish to like extremely overtly feminine, uh, and then we also have action and you know girls fighting monsters right. and occasionally satan and you know <laughs> yes things like oh that oh my god so I gotta find you know, princess night now right so from the beginning we have you know a serialized narrative but you know it's there's continuity to it there's drama and there's playing with with gender roles uh from there that's when we start to get uh you know japanese television creating a marketing you know a a, a viewing block uh, specifically dedicated to magical girl shows, mm -hmm. which is, you know, starting in the 60s with Sally the Witch and then going on to Himitsu no Akuchan, uh, Marvelous Melmo, and, uh, and and a whole series of, of magical girl shows, which they called Majoko shows, which means Little Witch. And this was the, the screening block dedicated to young girls' uh, anime. And they usually were like a little girl who has uh, a magical power that she uses to just do typical everyday things. It was it was really drawn from like Bewitched in in America because Bewitched right. was very popular in Japan as well. Um, but you know, just sort of like mundane, sort of comedic vignettes. Not a lot of like monster fighting, but a lot of just like I turned my neighbor into a frog. Oops. Oopsie doopsie. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but but from the beginning, we also have like this introduction of transformation and uh, an age changing uh, as well. Mm. Uh, Himitsu no Akuchan, the main character, has a magical mirror that's in a compact. So that you know started very early on that she can use to transform into an adult or into anything really, but often into an adult with a job. And mm -hmm. it was about teaching young girls, like, what it is to grow up and be an adult. And it was sort of a, a way of socializing them uh, to an extent, mm -hmm. which becomes really explicit with Marvelous Melmo in 1971, which is another Tezuka um, creation where a young girl, uh, her parents die, but she gets these magic pills that can allow her to grow 10 years older or 10 years younger. Um so, it, and so she takes these pills and, like, her body, you can see her transform into an adult. This is just trans all over. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I could definitely see that. Uh, although I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Tezuka didn't really uh, think about those, those kind of implications back then. Um, Am I well, I, I, he was very concerned with, like, making women into, you know, making young women into women. He was oh, okay. sort of, like, this very, uh, you know, uh, 
he was really trying to teach children how to be grown up and Mm so uh, marvelous melmo is actually a a sex education show as much as anything else interesting it's about like the original about their changing bodies yeah it's yeah and and like big mouth uh it attracted a lot of controversy uh for its depictions (laughs) of uh you know sexuality with young people uh so one of the weird things about it if you try and find it today is uh there's a lot of panty shots of this 10 year old turning into uh an adult and she's Uh, very sexualized in that transformation um and like her clothes stay the same size (laughs) when she just get like uh, shorter yeah Um, so so that's like the beginnings of like the sexualizing of magical girls which then gets turned up to 11 when cutie honey comes out in 1973 are you guys familiar with this one at all yes i'm familiar with uh cutie honey and do you want to sort of introduce that one oh god okay i'm more (laughs) just familiar with go nagai as a person and Uh putting it i will put this this way go nagai likes sex but i don't he's not making this for 10 year olds at all no this is more for adults considering you know he's the original creator of uh devil man but you yeah, know my yeah. knowledge of cutie honey is i've seen the openings which has uh <laughs> boobs so many sorry. boobs <laughs> i can't really add more on many that much boobs oh god there's like ones where it's like there's sliding panels and then it's like oh her shirt gets opened while the the opening plays so it's this is the one where i will say this is definitely not hey little girls don't you want to be like this this is for older people for sure except it is though sarah really? i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with you oh there my because God. in the conception of it there's there's this pitch of Cutie Honey is this, you know, transform or, or or Honey the character is this transforming robot, uh, you know, sex doll human, um, but she can transform into seven distinct identities, uh, which all represent like potential careers for young women, which is like a, a trend that you see going through these that you're trying to establish for young girls, like what are the options, and they're always very limited. <laughs> Uh, to like six or seven possible jobs, one of which is always like stewardess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like there was, there is a sense that like in some ways this is for a lot of different audiences that all conflict with each other. That mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that that Go wanted it to be for young girls, yes, but also for young boys who like to see boobs and for older. <laughs> Uh, fans of you know spy thrillers and mystery stories in general Um, but this is like the biggest like bad guy fighting magical girl up to this point uh okay and and the nude transformation is like a huge innovation i guess of the genre if you can call it that yeah i know it, it at least i know it did it ran in a like shonen magazine at least yeah that, that no, was it, the more thing that I knew, so I was like hyper. I hyper focused on that. I was like, oh, yeah. definitely more for the boys. No, you're absolutely right. But the pitch for the anime, uh, it was competing with another show. I believe it was um, Majoku Megachan, uh, or or maybe it was something else. But uh, it was competing with another magical girl show for the slot, uh, and it lost out to this more child friendly version. And so they they changed it. 
uh, after it missed out on the slot to make it more sex appeal-y and more adult um, and more action-oriented for boys because it was not going to be showing on the dedicated Japanese TV slot, for time slot for girls. little girls. Um, so after that, we have more like age-changing anime and, and transformation sequences. Uh, the, the most popular shows of the 80s were Magical Princess Minky Momo and Creamy Mommy the Magic Angel. Um, what a horrible name. Well, cr- creamy, it's mommy like the Japanese name. No, not I, like... I know, but like, <laughs> oi, vey. And her parents own an ice cream shop, so get your mind out of the, the gutter. Okay, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> right. And I think it's interesting that around this time, you know, like anime, which is known for its limited animation, uh, as opposed to full animation that you would see in like a Disney feature, um, mm-hmm. that around this time in the 80s is when you start to see in American limited animation shows for kids, mm-hmm. more of these transformation sequences in shows like She-Ra and Gem and the Holograms, which which mm-hmm. both came out in 1985 and both had some Japanese, you know, outsourced animation uh involved in the production right Um, so i don't know there might be it might be sort of like a parallel thing where if you're selling things to children you want to have a transformation somewhere in there so that you can save money on the budget uh by repeating animation but it might be sort of a cross influence across the uh the the east west divide um and then i think we get to where most uh, Americans are exposed to magical girls is in Sailor Moon in the 90s, which is yeah. a big gap for Tokyo TV. But uh, you know, it, it, there was there was a gap in in demand for it, and then Sailor Moon reignited it by combining the sort of kind of shonen e uh, style of Cutie Honey with Tokusatsu, Super Sentai, Power Rangers type team up fighting anime and that i think really redefines the genre for the rest of time uh and then it's not until you know 2005 or you know 2010 even that you start seeing a lot of these subversive uh genre bending uh versions aimed at adults sort of critiquing mm-hmm. sailor moon and uh and shows before it so that's sort of my my <laughs> intro to 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 maho shoujo uh for, for you guys <laughs> for someone who didn't grow up with the genre you did a really good job <laughs> well, i tried to do a lot of research and uh and looking at fan accounts as well as you know um more uh <laughs> more historical accounts of just like tv production so you know we've we've talked around it a little bit um but i think we should just go through and like bang out like what are the the basic ass tropes of a magical girl anime you know that we're gonna see eventually subverted and remixed and reimagined and critiqued um and maybe not critiqued you know like you mentioned the transformation sequence and how that has sort of become a staple and a mainstay Um, which goes back to akachan or even to princess knight if you want to trace it back that far with like the costume changes but mm-hmm. has really changed and was really, I think, defined by Cutie Honey and the idea of, like, she strips off all of her clothes to show the audience what the goods are and then Ugh. and then uh, magically applies and creates clothes out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, you see the individual parts of the costume sort of come into being on right. her. 
right. and then that really gets you know cemented as like the central thing of the genre by uh by sailor moon right yes yeah for sure and then Sailor Moon also, I think, establishes, like, a, a pretty consistent formula of crime fighting, uh, monster fighting, and uh, the idea of, like, making a contract with a magical furry animal thing that will give you <laughs> the power in exchange for helping them save the world. Yeah. Also, definitely with Sailor Moon, like, there might be others, but that's the first one I can think of where they, well, yeah, Sailor Moon is the focus, but you also have the whole teamwork aspect and because so many of the episodes are episodic you can go like into more of like oh these two characters are having a problem and they're fighting and it's usually always um usagi and ray it's like how are they gonna (laughs) how are they gonna resolve this to fight the monster no that's that's a really good point sarah and I'm, i'm glad you brought that up because the the persistence of like shoujo comics which were typically more uh personal life and, and relationship based rather than monster of the week fighting shows uh mm. then gets sort of blended with the shonen aesthetic the boys comic aesthetic of just fighting and getting stronger and getting new powers and and whatnot um and i think like sailor moon is like maybe the most essential blending of those two yeah and the fact that it draws so much from the super sentai themes of teamwork that you would see in power rangers and all of these other team up fighting sh- you know voltron or whatever you know like all of the boys shows that were about teamwork the fact that now we have a girl show that's about teamwork and teamwork. friendship uh is is a huge innovation that that helps the marketability as well as just the um the enjoyment of it but you know what about the i'm interested in like what of, of these different like character types what kind of character yeah. tropes persist throughout all of these shows and and why might they appeal to to young girls well i definitely think like with each of the characters kind of has like if you can narrow it down to like oh this is you know this is the smart one this is the you know she's brainy oh this one is like you know super strong and like not just physically also has a strong soul and Mm -hmm. by having all the different character types each like when you talk to a sailor moon fan like you'll get like a million different answers for oh who's your favorite of the sailor scouts like and Mm -hmm. every girl will at least get at least like at least a few people that's like oh that one's my favorite like personally (laughs) My favorite is is basic basic bitch answer, but Soggy Sailor Moon has always been my favorite just because, mm-hmm. like I, I think I mentioned before, I like the fact that she's stupid, and <laughs> but she's she's stupid, but she's strong of soul and she's caring, and I that always, and I remember I always asked friends, I was like, oh, do you think I think I'm like Sailor Moon? And they would tell me it's like, no, you're not stupid, and I'm like, I'm not talking about her education level. I know she's stupid. I'm talking about the deep soul personality, and then they would still well, go. Well, I think it's interesting how she's defined as stupid. It's mostly through like performance at school, school which is a yeah, huge right. point of stress for Japanese children and American children as well. But yeah, maybe to a lesser extent. I don't know. Um, children stress about school. I think is a right. fair and so her feeling stupid and wanting to escape the mundane school life to do something more meaningful with all of the, uh, let's say adolescent passion uh mm-hmm. of of you know the excitable youth 
Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like, that's the wish fulfillment. That's the excitement. You know, we, we have a classic, a little bit five-man band kind of um, dynamic with the, the main Sailor Scouts. Um, you know, we've got Mars as the Lancer and Mercury as the, um, you know, the sensitive kind of smart one. <laughs> tactician. <laughs> the tactician, yes, there you go. Um, you know, and then, like, you got, got the couple. Jupiter's muscle. <laughs> I'm sorry, don't you mean the, the cousins? Because yeah, of... that's that comes way later though. They're not the they're not the five man band. Um, <laughs> sure. But yes, yes, you know we get the big one with Jupiter, and then um, God, I uh, why is her name escaping me in this moment? Oh, the Venus, blonde Venus, Jesus. She's the one who had the prequel manga that was based on her, so a lot of people <laughs> right. already knew who she was. Sailor V, yeah. Codename Sailor V, mind you. The, the archetypes of the different characters are there just, I guess, you know, in some way so that you have more merchandise to sell, more, like, group costume ideas for cosplayers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, different powers and, and conflicts that you can create with, with the shows. Um, but I think, like, largely you're selling just the idea of being a magical girl as, like, a lifestyle um, right. There was a and really then it comes article. with these friends, you know, like if you're lonely and feel bad right. at school, like, don't worry about it. You can go off and save the day with, you know, your five best friends and a mysterious, like, handsome stranger. Right. Um, <laughs> I read an interesting article about the latest mega franchise of Magical Girls from Toei Animation, which, you know, okay. most of these shows end up being Toei. But that's the uh, the Pretty Cure series, otherwise known as Precure. Um, mm-hmm. So this is an article from Anya C. Benson uh, called "Becoming Pretty Cure: uh, Building the Lifestyle Text in Japanese Girls Franchises," and she talks about like the way that these these anime that like have long running seasons upon seasons and so much merchandise for people to buy and to consume that what they're selling isn't just you can be magical too, but you can be the type of girl who could become magical girl. And that comes mm-hmm. with a lot of like caveats and, and quid pro quos. Um, so uh, she's, she writes, to become a cure is not just to dress a certain way and own certain toys. It is also to enact certain societally acceptable norms of behavior. Um, and uses the example of uh, the ways that the anime characters will be shown studying and the ways that they can, um, through marketing and through selling specific items, have the children also be studying in the same way and be good students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that other activities that they encourage are practicing hiragana, participating in dance lessons, decorating cute cakes. Um, and so she writes... Uh, Precure prioritizes pedagogical play that positions becoming an ideal subject as a skill attainable through the performance of specified learnable actions. So what do you think about that as sort of something that's drawn throughout the Maho Shoujo uh, genre? That it's it's educating girls on what it is to grow up and how to grow up to be specifically the kind of girl that, they, that the show wants them to be. I feel like with Precure specifically... It is aimed towards like, like Sailor Moon. I could you could say 
is like has a had a wide age age range in Japan mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. like Pretty Cure is specifically more aimed at like six year olds. Mm-hmm. So right. it's it's a lot of times like I've I've seen like a few episodes here and there of some stuff, but it's pretty like it is this stuff is kind of just like I'm trying to think of how it, it's almost like I'm thinking about like Nick it's Jr. Like, almost even right. though it's like or the things like oh like kind of like with American TV how you had like we had some like, like education. Barbie's Dream House yeah you know? stuff it's like, like that. This is, this is how you, you know, learn how to take care of your friends and like, oh, you should also study for the big test on Sunday or I don't know yeah, why a test so is on Sunday, but <laughs> I feel like well, yeah, a lot of this is kind of hidden in a magical girl show of them like yeah. fighting uh, soccer ball monsters and uh, monsters <laughs> that are uh, giant ramen bowls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Th- that is uh, those are two different monsters that are appear in Heart Catch Pretty Care. Which is the only one Incredible. I've seen a bit of. It's great. <laughs> Incredible. But yeah, it's just like it, it seems like it's a common element in a lot of like children's TV of like learning yeah. while you're watching. Yeah. Aside from the fact that, you know, Pretty Care is definitely a little bit didactic in its or prescriptivist, I guess you might say, and sure. in, in how it in the message it's trying to convey to its viewers, and part of that is by nature of the culture it's coming from, and then another part, the audience it's technically supposed to be targeting of children. Um, you know, similarly to American shows with, you know, we see like My Little Pony, these shows sometimes get uh, appropriated by older audiences and male audiences. Um, and sort of turned into fetish objects. Sure, yeah. Um, and I think that it's it's all sort of baked into anime in a sense, that it's, it's yeah. sort of inseparable. Um, because, at least this is the way that a lot of the theorization goes, because anime is essentially uh, a, a transmedia property that is mm-hmm. designed to sell uh, merchandise. So there's a, a great book by Mark Steinberg called Anime's Media Mix, where he discusses the concept of the dynamically immobile character image, which is he's he's arguing basically that the, the fact that uh, Japanese limited animation focuses on these really like action filled, uh, very emotive still images because the animation is so limited that they're they're animating on threes whereas like Mm -hmm. even in america we mostly animate on twos you're animating on threes and you're you're only moving certain parts of the frame and other things are very still that you create an image that is very transferable into like sticker form or right (laughs) or action figure form (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, I, I'm thinking just back to, like, early internet usage of, uh, you know, anime characters and anime images uh, and, like, you know, the, like, super crushed 23 megabyte, like, GIFs that people would use as their, uh, you know, like, icons on different, um, like, DeviantArt. on DeviantArt. Yeah. Yeah. On, on forums and anywhere, you know, and, and that people could have, you know, you just have a picture of Sailor Moon going, blah, and then, like, sparkle text at the bottom, and then, like, there's your personality, you know? Like, it's very expressive, and, right. and I, I, I totally think that that, that definitely um, leads to a proliferation... Prol- 
a proliferation of the images. Yeah. Um, I think both online in today's culture and then I think what you were leaning towards um, in merchandising and right. products. And even pre-internet, you know, internet, like Steinberg talked yeah. about in the 60s, like the very first like Tetsuan Atomu chocolates. That it's just chocolate with Astro Boy's face on them. Yep. Um, yep. And, Kitzel, and here's like his main claim, that up. which is yeah, <laughs> his main claim is you know here we come to the important role that the specific image regime of anime played in character merchandising. Anime enabled a greater pro- proliferation of visually consistent character images across media forms than had previously been possible. This was in part because of the consistency of the image was maintained and dynamized by the particular re- relation between stillness and motion found in the television anime. So, and that persists today, even though the limited animation has become more fluid, there's still the stillness and the style of anime has a relationship with the time sort of freezing. And we can see that in the transformation sequence, where Mm -hmm. time stands still so that we can get a nice good look at basically like the one bit of motion that we can afford in every episode. And right, and it's great. The attacks we can are all just it. like holding a wand and then lasers shoot out. You know. I mean, I think the transfer. You know, if we're talking about how the technology influences the the end product, uh-huh. um, you know, the transformation sequence. It's the same sequence every episode. Yeah. You don't have to reanimate that. You just reinsert it into wherever it needs to go. You know, right. and then it cuts back to. And now I'm in this pose in my Sailor outfit. And then, like, as the right. seasons go on, especially for Sailor Moon, it's like, ooh, you can tell things have changed because now she has feathers on her outfit. <laughs> right, right. No, she's more powerful right. now because there's rainbows on her skirt. Right, which also encourages <laughs> you to buy the newest toys. Um, yeah. So uh, Kumiko Saito has this really fantastic uh, article that I really encourage everyone to read. It's called Magic, Shoujo, and Metamorphosis. Uh and she talks about that the the technique of breaking down the transformation sequence into individual body parts uh, and, and describes it as fragmentation, which is the same technique that would be used to sell, you know, Transformers toys or even like a car or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a piece of furniture. You break it down into its components parts uh, to make it appear more attractive to potential buyers and then she says, while it can simultaneously redeem the lack of human and material resources. So it's like the object is itself. It pre-exists the production of these toys. Um, and then she says, the spatial dissection of the female body allows the camera's gaze to explore the depth of the viewer's affection in the disembodied body. So what she's saying there is that because when you're watching these transformation sequences, you zoom in close on the arm as it's clothed and the, mm-hmm. the chest as it's clothed, and the hair as it grows, um, you're, you're almost taking away the body of the actual character and replacing it with a product that's consumable. Mm. And um, she says that you know, goes all the way back to you know, Minky Momo back in the 80s, uh, mm. that that's not like an invention of the like, nude transformation sequences that, that you know, explicitly fetishize the, the female body. Mm-hmm. Um, that are specifically marketed at men. It goes back to the ones that were for kids and that right. were about growing up and becoming a woman, you know, those kind of things. Right, right. But it's about, I mean, I mean, that is, 
Oh, like, like everyone, every weeb, every otaku knows that like half the point of anime is all of the other junk that comes with it. You know, <laughs> yeah. is that you can sure you go and watch your favorite anime, but then you can buy fifty thousand shirts, you can buy a billion wallets, you can buy a million key charms, um, and you know, part of that is the like capitalistic like this is officially licensed stuff from the show and then another part of it is fan created um items and merchandise that that can come out of these shows and i i think that's also some of the reason why like excluding i'm I'm not talking as much about creepy older fans but more just like people who like stuff is they're the ones that have money so it's like they're like fig like a Sailor Moon figure. A little girl might want a Sailor Moon figure, but mm-hmm. somebody who like works an office job and like Sailor Moon, they're more likely to be able to afford that figure. So I think right. that's why there is a lot of, you know, more there is a lot of marketing towards like older older fans right. or well, at least adult just fans just cuz it's like they got money to spend. Right. I think it's also just market segmentation because an adult is less likely to buy like the plastic compacts or the wands Mm -hmm. uh, that a girl might buy and those are much cheaper to produce. So there's different segments that create different levels of profitability, but you want to appeal to everybody if you can. And since there isn't like a massive pushback to these male fans who sort of in Japan at least kind of have like an ownership of anime as a whole. um it's you know it's it's not really contested um so i think like this brings us to i think some of the more subversive ones because now that we're bringing in like these critiques of magical girl anime um there are shows that sort of try and handle these critiques themselves and also try and sort of create a feeling of like haha aren't i better than the people who watch you know uh pretty uh, here yeah or uh what's that other one um dore (laughs) me Okay, do, I will say this. Dory Me features a character who has cancer. So it goes it goes it goes hard. I have not seen right. it. But, but in like, a children's show kind of way. Um so w- w- why don't we talk about do you want to do uh Madoka first or Utena first or Kill a Kill or I'd what say do you we do? starting with Utena just because it's the um chronologically chronologically and also since the director of Utena directed a lot of episodes of Sailor Moon. So Yeah. Um, the gayest ones. As, uh, <laughs> no, he directed. He directed the episode where they go to the uh, where Mamaru's sitting on the train by himself like a loser. <laughs> if you know which one I'm talking about, I so don't. they go to the fairyland and the, he, there's oh. a train. He oh, wanted, that oh, one. He was trying his hardest to get Tuxedo Max Max to get killed. He's like, I don't want this guy. And then they were all like, all the other like the investors or whoever the producers were like, you can't kill off Tuxedo Girls Mask. Like tuxedo Mask. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want this man here. He sucks. <laughs> Girls only. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so Revolutionary Girl Utena is set in a high school. Maybe it's sort it's of high an school ambiguous combo middle time school. and space. I- uh, Utna is 14. I, I, I looked this up the other day because I yes. was trying to remember. So it's like m- middle Yeah, but there's, school, there's high, school. high schoolers there yeah. as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. And there's also adults there who also hit on the 14-year-olds um, ah. and have sex with them uh, semi-consensually. Um, but that is the, the nature of, of the show. It's a show about consent and about freedom yeah. and about freedom of choice. Uh, because this girl um, 
she was visited by a prince in her, her childhood and was so enamored with him that she decided to become a prince herself. So it's a subversion in the vein of Princess Knight from mm-hmm. way back in 1953. There's a, a, a through line here. And like Sapphire of the Princess Knight series, uh, she fights with a sword in order to defend the things that she believes in and and save uh, save princesses. Um, that's that's her, her, her main goal. So during a typical episode, you're dealing with a personal problem that somebody's having, uh, often related to romance or to familial relationships. And then at the end, there is a magical Sorry, duel for the fate of the Rose Bride, this character, Anthe, who uh, is destined to be wedded to whoever uh, wins the Rose Duels. Uh, up on top of this magical tower. Uh, <laughs> so what what is the show about? What is it saying about magical girls? What is it saying about uh, about anime in general and about uh, women's uh, issues? Saying girls should kiss and that's valid. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't kiss. They don't I mean, ever kiss the movie. in the show. That's the movie. That's the movie. Um, yeah, so Utena ends up falling in love ambiguously with Anthe. Um, who is portrayed as this like incredibly passive, like detrimentally passive character, in that she's always subservient to Utena and then further to uh, her her sicko brother. Who brother. Is, uh, spoilers, by the way, for for all of these these shows, for this show and <laughs> and later for for Madoka. So like by the end of the show, Utena sacrifices herself for Anthe's freedom, and it's sort of supposed to represent a cycle of abuse of women and a patriarchal subjugation of women that is in some ways escaped or at least tweaked. And that is the revolution, Mm -hmm. at least to my understanding. Yeah, I would agree with that reading. So in what ways does it follow magical girl tropes and what ways does it not? One thing is just, Utna is the, it's not just the girls that transform for That's this true. element. And it's like, I feel like because Utna is the, the focus, she is the like titular magical girl in this case. But with having like, it's everyone transform, it's like the focus is basically like Utna's own ideals versus whoever she's fighting at that time. Be it, you know, a kind of antagonistic character or a character, especially in the Black Rose arc, who's been kind of taken advantage have that's had their weakness taken advantage of and from there like I always uh, related but someone once told me that it's like when you watch Utena for the first time you're watching the plot you're paying attention to what's going on every rewatch of Utena you're still paying attention to the plot but you're more just focusing on Anthe figuring out okay what is she actually doing in this scene I thought it was this but like, what it, what are, what, what tricks did she play in this scene? To, it's like, highlighting the passiveness of a female character to obscure the ways in which she is subtly active, which is also the work that most feminist critics do with a lot of the, um, you know, tearjerker films of the, uh, you know, the silent era and the, mm-hmm. the early Hollywood era. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's doing a lot of the same things that that feminist criticism has always done. Yeah. I also think that it, it follows in some ways the, the shoujo uh, archetype of these are coming-of-age stories, and it draws specifically on 
a really dark and twisted kind of coming of age story, which is Herman Hesse's 1919 novel Demian, um, which uh, they, they borrow this this monologue sort of from it about uh, if uh, the the world's shell the world is an egg, and the if we break the shell we'll destroy the world, but but the chick will be born, and if mm-hmm. we don't break the shell the chick will die, and that's part of this Demian uh, novel. And it's all about the darkness of becoming an adult. And so that is Utena's story as well, is like revealing her sexuality and and achieving sexual maturity uh, Mm -hmm. by the end of it, right? Also, in relation to the whole sexual maturity thing, Utena is probably the only show where the uh, recap episodes are required viewing. Because plot (laughs) happens in them. Very important Mm -hmm. plot. Sexual maturity I mean, there's definitely... There's definitely, uh, I think, other shows where recap episodes, like, pull similar gimmicks. Um, but, like, yeah. Utena is famous for, like, really bizarre and kind of symbolically choppy uh, uh, recap episodes. Yeah. Um, it does have a transformation sequence, doesn't it? Right? So... Yep. It follows But everyone. <laughs> everyone. Everyone, everyone transforms. Again. But there's a repeated one in every episode of... Utena getting shoulder pads and kind of a pleat around her, you know, uh, boy's uniform or boy's mm-hmm. school uniform that she wears. The, the um, boy's school uniform that none of the other boys wear, that they say, <laughs> this is a boy's school uniform. And all the other boys are there wearing this ugly green thing. And then Utena's there with a stylish black coat. <laughs> right. She's um, showing them up. Yeah, and and so the whole thing is that she's a female prince fighting for a princess. This is like a trope that you'll see repeated in a lot of these things as well. It's also a major theme in Princess Tutu as well, right? The princess saving the prince as opposed Mm -hmm. to the prince saving the princess, which is the the conventional fairy tale narrative, right? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you make of that? I mean, I think it plays into the um, like definitely into the power fantasy of it. Like you mm-hmm. know, even back in Sailor Moon, like there's the classic image of Tuxedo Mask. You know, like my job here is done, and then Usagi <laughs> going, but you didn't do anything. You know, right. like uh, there's the the you know, in the same way that it's it, it's fun in mm-hmm. sort of a gender wars kind of way right. for, I think, young girls to see, like, I can be the hero. I can have the um, romantic onus kind of taken on myself and that I can be the savior um, and I don't have to be saved. But, um, you know, I think Princess Tutu still definitely... Like, yes, she wants to save the prince, but it's in this very, like, self-sacrificing kind of way, right. you know? Um, like, it's not in the, yes, I will save the prince, and then he will definitely fall in love with me. It's like, oh, well, how could he ever fall in love with me? I'm just a little duck. Quack, quack. <laughs> um. <laughs> right. Or in Utena's case, you know, she refuses to acknowledge that she wants to be desired, um, you know, by whoever is currently desiring her at the moment. Um, yeah, because she wants to be a prince and be the one who desires others, right? Um, and this idea that masculinity is sort of tied to the active pursuit, right? I He's think the, is the self and the other, the woman being othered and being yeah. the other, um, 
I want to point to, this is like from the abstract of an article by uh, Lian Fan Shen, um, which is called The Hysterical Subject of Shoujo. And she's kind of talking about this show and what we'll talk about in a second, uh, Madoka Magica, uh, but saying, uh, whereas shoujo heroines are granted magic power as a form of female empowerment, the symbolic system of anime posits shoujo heroines both as the subject and the other, emphasizing their sexuality through visual symbols and narratives. Situated in psychoanalytic frameworks, this essay highlights shoujo heroines' persistent quest after who am I to others as the hysterical subject who fully recognizes her subject self as an object in the masculine order. So mm. even as these characters try and like reject their objectification or commodification by the anime system, they're mm-hmm. still, by the end of the show, sort of acknowledging their... their um, their 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 objects their otherness their um their being pursued by others and also um they they end up sort of sacrificing themselves for the sake of another um who is who is then still saved by them which i think is it's an interesting sort of trend that even in the subversions like there's never a point where like the female character actually gets to step out of the story and say I'm just going to be myself for my own sake and not for the sake of, you know, the system that's being perpetuated. Mm-hmm. In Newton's in case, it's it's really just that, you know, she, like she wants to be a prince, but in the end, she kind of is a princess that needs to be saved by another princess that she saved. And it becomes kind of <laughs> cyclical. But it's cute. It is cute. It's very cute. Um, <laughs> Except when there's manipulation involved, but... No. Well, yes. <laughs> minus the manipulation. <laughs> but yeah, I know there's an early episode of Utna that kind of relates to what you were talking about, where mm-hmm. because it's like the first time she after she loses a duel, where she feels like, oh, I, I'm a failure. And like by when she feels like a failure, she reverts into like, you know, wearing the female female uniform and trying to be a kind of oh i'm going to be this uh this perfect demure girl this is all i can be because and then it's her friends basically snap her out of it and they're just like how like what are you doing this isn't you like this is like and then you know she's able to you know break break free of it and then despite being because like when she challenges toga again she's still in the school uniform if i remember correctly during that fight and or the, sorry the female school uniform and she still ends up being able to kick his ass and then goes back to you know basically kind of like all right like even though i experienced failure i'm gonna you know i'm i'm gonna fight fight on to protect Anthony. Right. i mean it's the biggest supposed subversion of the show that she rejects cuteness you know that cuteness is the power in shoujo right mm-hmm. when you become more cute and more you know girly and, and frilly you become more powerful um and uh and she's sort of rejecting that by saying i'm going to present more masculinely but in the end because of the way that anime is structured people are still buying plenty of cute beautiful utana dolls and right. figures and and I mean, it's 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 the same inevitable conclusion from like you know the Hunger Games movies, where mm. the whole point of that is that isn't it fucked up to watch teenagers fight to the death? That's messed up, man. Here's a whole movie where teenagers fight to the death. Wild, you know, <laughs> like 
I don't know. Like I and and like the marketing around all of the Hunger Games stuff. You know, I feel like it's it runs totally counter to the actual message of those books and those movies. Um, and I think it's the same thing with with anime like this, and especially Madoka suffers from this so incredibly. Yeah, should, should we transition absolutely. into that? Uh, yeah, that yeah with just just the absolute, um, you know, capitalist commodification and like recuperation of everything like that happens in Madoka, and how you know these girls are just dolls for you to buy and <laughs> pillows for you to cuddle, and right. which like, is that's it's their built purpose. into the the subject of the show itself in the form of this like capitalist like contract that yeah. is formed between these magical girls and this otherworldly entity known as Kube, the incubator, um, whose job it is is to um, to harvest the energy from teenage girls' emotions. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have to say... By killing many, many people. <laughs> and treating yes. them as livestock. Yes. I, I love the way that Madoka, um, as a show, like tries to explain why all of these magical creatures like you know would be coming to earth and uh-huh. giving these like 13 year olds fantastic powers um and because like, you're hormonal because you're like on your period well no i don't think it's that i, I think, think it's a little in... like it's a little you know condescending i disagree yeah. i just think it's right. that's a time period when like you know, I don't think it's just like emotions it's like, are big. Emotions are big. Boys or girls, and it's like that's the point. But they don't that... go after boys. That's what they say. They say we go after girls because of your population, the most emotional and the 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 biggest turn from hope to despair mm. is teenage girls. But that is kind of true. Bit, like in in it, health class, it's a little grade, They tell you they're like I sure I do remember my health teacher being like, "Oh yeah, boys are boring. Their hormones are just like this. Girls, they just go up and down like this." But I I don't know. I mean like yes, it's true to some extent. It's definitely a little bit like bioessentialist, but I think, you know, I think to that female audience it feels true, you know? You're like, yeah, I remember being 13, and, like, even if I wasn't having friend drama, my emotions were still, like, up and down. I think it feels true to the male viewers as well, because they're trying to explain in-universe why it has to be magical girls, where the truth Mm -hmm. is, obviously, it's because of marketing, you know, (laughs) that you're marketing a show to girls, you want all the magical beings fighting to be girls. Um, Mm -hmm. It's about market segmentation. But within the universe of the show, it has to have, like, a logical explanation. And so it goes right. to this kind and, like, of stereotypical place of, like, teenage girls. They're big, crazy. But, like, I mean, yes. But also, as someone who was a teenage girl. Sure. Big feelings, man. Big right. Every... But, I mean, it goes beyond that because they, they also specifically um, reference the sort of selling of these girls' bodies. Uh, which is, you know recontextualizing all of the previous magical girl anime that we've seen but literally mm-hmm. when you make a contract you give up your body and get turned well, into a little egg a... yeah your soul becomes an egg um a little fabergé <laughs> egg uh that eventually will you know you'll lose your body entirely and then turn into a big amorphous witch um mm-hmm. and the relationship between 
girlhood and adulthood being the transition from magical girl to witch is an interesting sort of paradigm that they're addressing. What, what do you make of that? I mean, there is a, the only thing I can say in regards to that, I don't agree 100% with like witch being adulthood just because mm-hmm. like one of the, probably the most central adult character is Madoka's mother who mm-hmm. is incredibly stable you know, she does, like, she's the lawyer. She's the moneymaker in her house. And she's, so I think if she didn't exist in that show, I would agree 100%. But, like, they're showing you as a successful a successful woman. So I think that goes more with the whole thing of they're being taken advantage of and having mm-hmm. their emotions turned against them to become something that they're not. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that you brought up that character because I think it's an interesting point of analysis. This, you know, Madoka's mother she's you know she's constantly stressed her her child has to take on sort of a, a motherly role with her waking her up in the morning she works long hours she drinks a lot um she but um, that's like japanese work culture in general you know right but i i think like let's break that down then what do you make of madoka's mother character what role does she play in this allegory of little girls making contracts to become essentially like contract workers for this like megalomaniacal livestock uh harvesting corporation (laughs) so like what does the mom represent in that what you know she talks about her like her dreams and like her dream is to have a particular lifestyle and madoka Mm -hmm. takes that and says well the lifestyle i want is to be a magical girl you know Mm -hmm. so what is the what role does she play in that in that allegory for capital (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i think she's almost supposed to be like a um like a grounding and guiding force you know like she's she's in the background mostly she's not super plot relevant she doesn't um you know like rush in and like give a big speech to madoka at any point and madoka's like oh you're so right mom but you know she is she's the role model and i think in an interesting way she's sort of a modern japanese um sort of imagination of feminism in the same way that like the working mom is in american media as well where you know she's she's got it all like yeah she works long hours but like she's also a mom she's 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 a a mom she's She's married to a nice man who takes, stays home and takes care of the baby. Mm -hmm. But I think that's precisely it. Like she is this role model and yet Madoka ends up by the end having dissolved her consciousness in order to rewrite the laws of the universe as a way to break the cycle of, of um, exploitation of young girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's almost sort of drawing a, a comparison, I think between exploitative practices with young girls bodies and capital itself that Mm -hmm. you know what what you know madoka's mom gets from pursuing a job is she gets to live her dream but it costs her so much in the form of she's always exhausted she's not able to properly attend to her daughter who then you know is dissolved into into (laughs) a god or or whatever you know sheds Uh her earthly body And I, I think that in some ways, like, she's meant to be, 
she's meant to draw our eye to working women in general. And I think that the show is in some ways like critical of the idea of socializing young girls to become working capitalists, uh, uh, you know, career women. And I think it's almost against that or, or it's maybe in favor of a kind of youth, like a nostalgia for youth that like, it sucks that children have to grow up to become just, Workers. you know, slaves to capital, basically. Right, regardless of gender, but we're using. A but focusing on on women, I think, girls. because it's a it's a sensitive issue for men, the idea mm-hmm. of like working women. That I think that probably the creators have a problem with working women. That I can really disagree. I do disagree one hundred percent. Just because yeah. I'm familiar with, like I've mentioned before, I'm very familiar uh. with this writer. And a big thing in a lot of his works is critiquing the status quo. He does not want things to remain stagnant, especially because I'm pretty sure that um, he put all of his uh, things he doesn't like into one of the magical girls, and that's Mommy. Because Mommy's whole existence is status quo is good because once she in the alternate universe or one of the other universes, when she learns the truth, she goes crazy and tries to kill everybody. Because this isn't this is this isn't right. This isn't normal. She can't deal with the truth, which is why in the future, in the other cycles, Homer is like, I can't tell her. She's gonna go completely crazy. So mm-hmm. her idea is right. like well, she she kills everyone to preserve their their innocence so they don't turn yeah. into witches. Right? Yeah, and that's the yeah. and it's I think it's that's seen as a negative by yeah. the story because it's she's she goes basically insane in that scene. So right, I think I think ultimately Maroka is it's yes, it plays into some unfortunate um, potential like stereotypes of the self-sacrificing woman, and that woman's power comes through this idea of sacrifice instead of self-improvement, the way it does often in shonen. Um, but like I think that that you know, ultimately it is asking for a change to happen. And even though it's maybe mildly traditional in how that change is occurring, um, you know, again, with the sacrifice of a woman, like she, she's basically Jesus, you know, she's, she's, she's dying to save our our sins. sins. Yeah. Um, You know, but I think, I think what you say about, um, you know, uh, sacrificing yourself for what for what is the different future um i Mm. i I think that there's an interesting article um by a theorist named tate james um who who tries to theorize like what is really changed by uh madoka's sacrifice where she determines that now when magical girls feel despair they won't turn into witches they'll simply die um now uh James writes, uh, Madoka Magica's revolutionary potential is ultimately harnessed but it, for a regressive vision of female purity and passivity. No, but the, the whole point is that it ends the, the entire cycle. Right, but <laughs> it ends that cycle with death. Rather than the sure. magical girls turning into these, these witches... Um, which uh, you know, uh, James draws on this these uh, this other these other theorists, Cleto and Ball, uh, who describe the the witches' labyrinths, which are represented visually with these colorful symbolic cacophony of you know random flashing lights and and drawings in different art styles. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, which they call the witch's labyrinths narrative spaces that they control. Yeah. They're not, they're more than physical spaces. They are complex nonlinear narratives where the symbols mm-hmm. are telling the stories of their lives and their traumas and their, their heartbreaks in the form of like virtually inscrutable, you know, cacophonous images. Mm-hmm. Um, and so James writes as witches, the girls had power, creativity, individual expression, an embodiment in the midst of their despair, the power to shape the world around them with their assembled story worlds. But with Madoka's new system where they die as soon as they feel that despair, uh, even that ambiguous power and creativity is denied them and they are literally wiped out of existence. That they are like an impure, the witches are like an impure blight on the world, these, you know, depressed and lonely women. And that Mm -hmm. if they simply died while in their pure state of, you know, magical girlhood where everything is bright and happy, that would be a more ideal system. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then j- just one more uh, bit um, that sh- uh, she argues that the magical girls embody female coded purity at the same time as they enact taboo or male coded traits, which does question the idea of, of the construction of gender and what, you know, whether girls should remain pure or whatever. But ultimately, <laughs> it still doesn't question the moralism inherent to the dichotomy of purity and impurity. So it's, a, mm. it's like there's a criticism Okay. Of this binary, but it still ultimately reinforces the binary. Does that make I sense? I see. I can see that. Yeah, I haven't. I hadn't considered it in that in that way before. It's interesting. I still like the show, but <laughs> it's a, it's a definitely new it's, dynamic. Everyone always has, especially with Madoka. Like you talk to ten different fans, and they'll all give you ten different interpretations of what they think the show is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's all it's all very interesting and something this isn't directly magical girl related, but it mm-hmm. is Madoka related is that there is a um are you familiar with Common Rider? Mm-hmm. Yes. There is a show that is written by uh, Gen Robochi, Madoka's author. It's basically Madoka but Common Rider. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's just it's So it's, it's really- another subversive look at a children's show. Yeah. But this time, more of a shonen. More, yeah, more uh, of a more of a shonen thing, and so it's just it's very interesting to see, like, because he has his character tropes that he uses, and it's just interesting to see, like, oh, this is the character that's more like Madoka, and they're all in this mm-hmm. case because it's Common Rider. Those are more represented by older male figures, but it's just mm-hmm. interesting to see that whole idealized purity, or mm-hmm. like that is Madoka is seen in a male character in 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 this uh in this franchise so i just always thought so that was the, interesting yeah the different way that it's embodied yeah um yeah that's interesting i have um, not finished yeah, it I, but i do need to get back to that <laughs> yeah i think as far as like the way that madoka fits within the larger you know magical girl framework yes it's talking about the commodification of women's bodies in a very critical way that i think is interesting mm-hmm. Yes, it's talking about, you know, capital and, you know, an adulthood and retaining the innocence of childhood, even in adulthood, the power of wishing, the power of belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it's about, you know, the same things that in some ways like Sailor Moon might be about with, you know, it's like young, beautiful, pretty girls fighting more monstrous looking uh, often female villains, your sort of read mm-hmm. up repulsas for Power Rangers fans, right? Or you know your your more mature witch like 
characters and that Madoka including that like magical girls turn into witches is acknowledging the inherent you know sort of conflict in that that you know that magical girls are trying not to grow up in some ways Mm. um that it's like a kids next door type narrative kids versus (laughs) grown-ups Right, you uh, turn 13 and, uh, you know, you can't be a kid anymore. You turn right. 18, you're not a magical girl anymore. You're a magical right. woman. Uh, but but that ultimately, it's, you know, it, it, it's, like their, it's like their cuteness must be preserved, is like the thing. that their, <laughs> their, their purity is in their cuteness, and when they lose mm. that and become these, like, monstrous beings, that's like a yeah. bad thing, as opposed to I mean, being a freeing revolutionary kind of thing yeah i think some part of that is definitely due to just like the the tropes and associations we have in any visual medium Mm -hmm. you know like not saying that that shouldn't be challenged (laughs) or you know looked at and uh reimagined but but i think it's definitely part and parcel for you know how we tend to view good characters versus bad characters uh on screen in general Right, and I think, you know, maybe we can end sort of with the idea of cuteness in general. What is is to be cute? And that's something that um, Kumiko Saito writes about a lot uh, in her piece. Um, You know, she writes that, like, cuteness is a concept associated with youth, passivity, femininity, overall powerlessness. Uh, But the recent brand of magical girls as cute battle heroes is a paradox of claiming power in powerlessness. And she relates that to um, a lot of the ways that people theorize, um, you know, transnational media in general, with Japan often coming to represent a colonized culture or uh, and and in, you know, in in media studies terms, like to be colonized is also to be somewhat, you know, feminized. Uh, This is like a a theoretical framework that, that sort of goes back to like early cultural theorists. But the idea that um, you know girls become a symbol of Japan itself as they're sort mm-hmm. of invaded and then encouraged to form these like contracts to protect Japan from outsiders because they were you know literally colonized by America and forced to rewrite their entire country <laughs> to like what we wanted it to be right um, so she writes about sort of the transition from cool Japan which was like a marketing push to like spread out our culture to the world to a kind mm. of cute Japan where it's like, we're harmless. We don't, you know, we don't mean anybody any trouble. We're okay. And that cuteness is like a form of diplomacy for Japan mm. itself. So uh, anime writes, diplomacy. I love yeah. That. No, I mean, that's what it is though, because it's, it's like the symbol of Japan being someone that produces things that other cultures consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she writes that, uh, The masculinized image of Japan at work has given way to that of feminized Japan at play, or Japan as play, and Mm. the changes we observe do not necessarily derive from the feminization of men, but from a new configuration of gender that wields its power in its youthfulness and cuteness. Uh, So I think it's, it's an interesting sort of talking about a fear of growing up, a fear of entering adulthood, as depicted through, through magical girls, uh, and that the fact that grown men are also enjoying magical girl anime might be a sign that they're also fearful of the parts of adulthood that are terrifying sexuality, 
marriage, child rearing, those kind of things. Relationships, adult relationships, yeah. you know. Right. Like, I mean, just you know, anime has, and... you know, shoujo anime has romance. It's a big part of it. Right. But in the right. early anime, uh, romance was a reward for giving up your magical powers. That was how a lot mm. of the, like, Minky Momo type shows end. Is like they give up their magic and then get to go be an adult and date. Um, but now it's, you know, Part it's the power of the power of dating and romance is power because it's not overtly sexual, you know, right. You're just being cute with people. Well, I mean, the, at least the manga of Sailor Moon definitely challenges that in a bit. Cause I know there is a, there is art that she drew, uh, she being the author of Sailor Moon of like Usagi basically naked in bed, like and then with it, tuxedo mask. Yeah, well, yeah, I forget the specifics, but it's just like her like cuddling up in in bed. So I feel like there is a thing where like it's kind of like the anti Narnia in the sense where <laughs> with the Susan when you know she grows up and she's just like, oh, I'm more interested in lipstick and like I don't want those imaginary games anymore. Yeah, and how it's kind of like contrasts to that where like usagi is able to like usagi is able to use lipstick and like you know be sexual and you know still be a magical girl right like the whole future moon thing where you know she sees her future self married with a tuxedo mask you know like you know and she still has her magical power she is still a princess she is still powerful whatnot um you know i think it's almost like the magical powers don't have to be given up, but they are sort of the, they're like a metaphor now for the blossoming of sexuality. And in they always have been. Teenage I mean, right, back right. to, you know. But now they're not something that needs to be abandoned Ar- 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 to be, a, right. But it's not something that needs to be abandoned for romance. You don't have to give up your sexuality. Right. Um, to have a happily ever after. Now your sexuality can be a part of the happily ever after. <laughs> Yeah, so as far as, like, as sexuality and romance is is, is contained within these shows, um, uh, this is, a, you know, again, Saito writing, because of the genre, because the genre's message now resides in the reappre- reappreciation of shoujo-hood, feminine sexuality, uh, which is one of the most attractive elements to male viewers, must be expressed in the form of its denial, a foundation mm-hmm. of the, the, like, lolicon aesthetic. So she describes, like, when, like, adult men are watching these, like, teenage girl shows, they're locating eroticism in its absence, which I Mm -hmm. think is, like, probably the best description of what Lolicon is, you know, psychologically. That it's going (laughs) specifically to the thing that doesn't have sex in it, that excludes sex, and, you know, using that as the the turn-on, as Mm -hmm. the, the focus. And so that's why, you know, they would go to a My Little Pony thing. Not necessarily because there's an inherent sexuality to a purple horse, (laughs) but because there's an inherent unsexuality to it. And their desire, their Moe desire is like to squeeze sexuality out of it by force. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep, I I think that's probably an accurate reading. And uh, but maybe that goes, I don't I don't want to end on such a well. Maybe that a, goes full circle with um, Kill a Kill. Do we want to just kind of briefly touch on Kill a Kill? Is sure. it Magical yeah. Girl? Kill a Kill. 
uh, and how is it, and what is it saying about Magical Girl anime in general? I, I think of it as very closely tied to Utena, uh, honestly, even though I don't know if the creators are even, you know, big fans of Utena, but... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they've seen Utena. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're allowed to work in the anime industry if you haven't right. seen Utena. You but know? just the duels in a, in a specifically high school setting, and the high school being representative of, like, fascist control over women's bodies... Yeah. Like, yeah. it reminds me very much of Utena. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's Studio Trigger, their whole whole deal, you know? Right, well, I mean, their um, whole deal, but then didn't they also make, like, Little Witch Academia, which is, like, about, like... But also, different directors. So, <laughs> okay, it's, like, enough. and that was, like, the director of, like, Little Witch specifically said, it was, like, oh, yeah, I want... He was, like, no panty shots. None. Right. This is for Harry families. Potter. Yeah. This is Harry yeah. Potter, but but it's Disney. our spin on it. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Kill a Kill. The the, I mean, the concept the... of the show is that the outfits that the Sailor Scouts are wearing these these Sailor outfits are literally like parasitic. All right. But then it undercuts that by saying, actually, it's their choice, and they they really want to do it. And they actually are symbiotic with these parasitic clothing that's well, meant to sell talks... toys. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it it falls into the same thing as Madoka, you know, yeah. where in trying to explain away the tropes of the genre, you know, like why teenage girls, why skimpy outfits? Oh, skimpy outfits because if the clothing touches too much of you, then it will over come your mind and you'll be a zombie so you need it as skimpy as possible so that <laughs> you know like that's why but you know it's 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 more complicated than just that because the clothes are also a metaphor for like authoritarian control and conformity and you know it's 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 got a lot of things going on. So I yeah. think it complicates any sort of like reductivist, like, oh, like, you know, when it came out, the the backlash was like, kill a kill bad, girls skimpy outfit, not feminist, blurg. And like, absolutely, you know, like, did the show need to do that? No. Does it sort of tie into other larger points that they were making? Yes. Right. Like it's. Not I just a think black it goes back situation. to the the Lian Fan Shen thing that I said, where it's the hysterical subject fully recognizes her subject self as an object in the masculine order, and then just says like I don't care, like I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> and it's it's about the you know um, the symbolic system of anime, which turns mm-hmm. women's bodies into toys and commodities and whatever that you can't break free of that, even within the narratives that you're constructing within it that mm-hmm. are critiquing it. So right. I think that's and, it. And then with with Kill a Kill, everyone's everyone's pretty much naked by the end. It's true. It's true. It's you know it's supposed to be like look it's everybody it's fine but like at the end of the oh, day, yeah. the largely male consumer base is going to be largely consuming it in the way that they always have. Right. Um, and and you know, girls will continue to consume Pretty Cure in the way that they always have as like a lifestyle mm-hmm. brand. Where they can go visit the the Pretty Cure park and dress up as Pretty Cure and you know buy a magic wand I mean, and, and right. whatnot. It's all it's, it's all like for toys and it's for exploitation, but it's also a very important it, part of our cultural framework for what femininity is. 
Right. I mean, it's Disney princesses in Japan. Yeah. That's a good comparison. Um, yeah. I feel remiss that uh, we didn't we didn't talk as much about, um, you know, love between girls, which has become a very you know important part of it. <sighs> and it's yeah. in some ways a fetish object for men as well, but in some ways is is also revolutionary in its own right. Mm -hmm. or the many examples of boys becoming magical girls that have emerged in recent years or trans magical girls or maybe we'll have to you know do a revisit episode where we come maybe back we and will. we talk about the all the the beautiful queerness of, right. of magical girls uh and sarah would you um would you like to come back for that if we oh do? that sounds that sounds that sounds amazing i've uh, <laughs> i definitely i've watched a few magical boy animes so i could definitely mm -hmm. talk about that awesome uh, yeah is there is there anything that you'd like to say to close or anything you'd like to plug oh uh watch symphogear uh that's all i gotta say <laughs> it's like okay. it's like madoka but, Ma but what if madoka Kamen punched things instead <laughs> all right all right uh, do you want people to find you on the internet or would you like uh, to remain a mystery? I'm just, yeah, I don't really, I'm in school, so <laughs> I don't really do much stuff online. Don't find me online. Sarah exists only on our podcast. Any of your and... academic work you'd like to promote? <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming a podiatrist, so Great. not really any, it's not <laughs> academic. I'm a science person. <laughs> uh well we really appreciated you know your expertise on this one and uh i think that uh, you know it's an interesting conversation that will continue of course as long as you know we still have american adaptations of these things as well and american mm -hmm. media absorbing japanese media in you know everything from steven universe to the sci-fi original series Magical Girl Friendship Squad, which I know got a lot of hate online, but I think is just, you know, it's just a silly little cartoon about, you know, magical girls who are, right. you know, millennials. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's magical girls by way of HBO's girls, basically. <laughs> um, where they're trying to survive in a capitalist hellscape. Right, right. While but, you know, we... Monsters. So many of the current animators, you know, grew up, yeah. like, working in the industry, grew up watching Sailor Moon at this point. And so, you know, the the media that they are creating is going right. to crib from that in certain ways. Right. Be and, be and Puppycat also is, yeah. you know, a cute, little, a cute little animal giving a girl magical power so she can go do temp work. So the capitalist the owl thing house. as well. Um, yeah. House so well. many so many things um but thank you everyone please tweet at us at talking tropes about what your favorite magical girl anime is and uh we'd love to fight with you about who's best girl um sounds great <laughs> we love that <laughs> yeah well uh by the power of the moon i we've we've podcasted you bye bye uh,